Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us, dying for us while we were in our worst. We look to you, to your Spirit, to instruct us, to teach us, to guide us in all truth, to take this Scripture and apply it to our lives. Thank you for being here. Thank you what you're going to do in advance. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9 as we continue through God's Word. Titus, chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. I titled it, nothing fancy, Appointing Elders. Elders. Elders are interesting because it speaks of, in its first sense, I'm just going to say, of people that are mature, not necessarily always older people. Yet sometimes wisdom comes from going through life. As you grow older, you, you know that you would have done things different and you have wisdom and partner. And yet I've known old people that, forgive me, they've missed the mark big time. They're not full of wisdom. They've lived a wasted life. A life that shows that they lack that wisdom in the choices and the decisions they make. Well, look with me in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we'll begin. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, a husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dispensation, rebellion. For an overseer must be above reproach as God's servant, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sorbid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible and just and devout and self-controlled holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. I'd like to show you a few slides before we get started. I, we've got the, the bigger TVs on the front, and I've been playing with it. And um, we're looking at a place, as you saw here in, in our text, it's Crete. Paul leaves Titus in Crete. Let's go to the next slide. I'm just going to have you kind of go through, and I'm not tying it exactly to the, the text. It's just me playing this morning. But from Crete and Cyprus, both is where the Philistines originally, what they were called the Sea People, had come down to Egypt and then came to, um, again, to that area, again, that we know where the Philistines lived, on that coast of the Mediterranean there in Israel. Here's a map, as you can see, as they go down. And you can see they come from two different places. I thought it was just a, a good time to kind of point this out because lots of times people say, where did they come from? Everyone migrates from one place. Everyone migrated, modern people, from, again, Noah's Ark. 
And they've moved someplace. And this is the way they've tracked these people as they've moved by. In fact, your DNA, if you did a DNA test, it can trace your family. Where does your family come from? Does anyone know? I can tell you my family comes from an area, sometimes it was Russia, sometimes it was Poland. Askenazi Jews. I was not, never raised that way, but that's where my DNA, more than 51% of my DNA comes from that area. My other half came from England. You see the Crete is out in, again, as we're talking about, it's out in the middle, the middle of the Mediterranean. It's interesting when you think about it. It's about 160 miles you know, in height and, and from 6 to 35 miles wide. It's smaller than the Big Island, this area. It was an area known with over 100 different cities, it was told, at this time. Let's go to the next slide. Paul had gone there, if you see in Acts 27.8, with difficulty sailing past, he came to a place called Fair Havens, and that's what you're going to see next. Let's go to the next slide. And this is actually the harbor of Fair Havens. This, this gives you insight, and if when this whole coronavirus is gone, I encourage you, if God would allow you to go abroad and see these places... It's the most incredible thing that happened because when you're reading the scripture, you will never read it the same. You will see pictures, you will see people, you will understand culture, you'll see uh, places in time. And it will make sense where Paul went and, and you can just walk through the scripture so easily. Let's go to the next slide. This is interesting. This is a, a church, as you can see there. See, it's a church. No one there. No one there. It's been abandoned. Not for a newer building. Let's go to the next slide. Again, here's another cave where St. Paul had fair havens in Crete. No one around. Notice it was originally called Martyrs Free Church. But today it's a place for stage parties. This is St. Paul's Church in Bristol, England. Do you remember Bristol, England? Stand out. George Mueller, a man of faith. They fed over a, a thousand children a day, believing that God would provide their needs in Christ Jesus. A church that was once a lot of people now is a place, again, for a school, for circus performers. Spiritually, like the other church, empty. All across Europe, church after church after church is empty. Europe, I don't know where to call it fully apostate. They're returning to their pagan roots. The reason I wanted to, to show these to you, one is to kind of give you a little feeling for the area, but we're talking, have been talking about apostasy. Apostasy empties a church because people no longer believe and can trust in God. In England, I saw some buses going through, municipal buses. People had bought, uh, again, big banners to put on the side of the God is dead. The world is headed in this direction just as the Bible has already told us. 
Yes, while Satan is working, God is still at work, and there are still pockets of revivals in different places. We long for that. We pray for that. Revival has to begin in my heart, in your heart, that we just don't come to church. Because going to church, it becomes a building, it becomes a routine, it becomes a ritual. What we need to be, and you've heard me say this before, those that have been here, we need to be the church. And what the church does is congregate together. We worship together. We open the word together. We encourage one another in the Lord. We pray for one another. This is what has stopped happening in Europe in so many ways. Yet God is still moving. His prophecy that's given about the end times is being fulfilled. Canada is moving in that direction. But you're saying, why do we bring it up here, Titus? It's interesting when we see that Paul left again in verse 5. He he left Titus there. He he left him in Crete. Crete is a a Greek island. And again, I mentioned the size of it. it, it. It's just this beautiful, incredible place. And on a sunny day, you know how our waters can be beautiful and aqua and just sparkling. It's like that all the time. But it was a pagan place. It's interesting as we talk about it again that Paul is sending there to establish leaders and elders and pastors. And this is one of the most important things is having men called by God to stand on the truth, for the truth, to speak the truth to people. Because if the people do not hear the truth, and and why other churches are no longer preaching the truth, when they decide they need to entertain, and and, and people are dying off, and there's not new people coming in, and they see the vanity in their mind of it. The truth is not being taught in many places, so they close up. They don't need the gospel. It's not good news to them. But it's the gospel that God has proclaimed that we bring to a world. It's the gospel, the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. It's this truth that will set the people free. In this crisis, which appears to be a crisis right now, the coronavirus, It is an opportunity to speak into the lives of others and the question you have to ask today before you even leave, will I speak the truth in love? You cannot say to someone that does not know Jesus Christ that is worried and panicked, you need to comfort them, encourage them, but you must speak the truth in love. You cannot say that you love them and not tell them the truth that will set them free. When 9-11 came, churches were full. When things got back to normal, they were empty again. Each one of us have to make that decision. Will we stand for God? Will we do whatever gifts and abilities that God has given us? Will we stand up for Jesus as the church is no longer standing for Jesus? 
Oh, numbers are growing, but they're not growing in Christ Jesus. Their lives are not in Christ Jesus. And this is so important. You and I have an opportunity today. Now, it's interesting as we look at this place. Again, Paul had been there. We have no idea when Paul was in Crete. We know in his first three missionary journeys, he never went there other than maybe going by and looking and cruising by the fair havens. But it gives us a reason that Paul, perhaps after his first, again, imprisonment that was released, in prison for his belief in Christ Jesus, continued as a missionary to reach out. We know that when he was in Crete or going by Crete, we know Titus wasn't with him, so there must be another time, and, and, and Titus was with him. That's what the Scripture is saying again, telling us. He's now telling Titus, you know, you need in this place to set what still needs that remains. They were evangelized. They were given the gospel message. Some say, and, and I believe there's some truth to this, on the day of Pentecost, when the church was birthed, there were people there from that island. But it appears it was a greater work when Paul had evangelized, perhaps to a hundred different cities? No. But to the main key cities. And that's how Paul did it. He'd go to those main key cities. He'd evangelize and they'd go out from there. But now there needs to be elders established. Overseers pastors, all the same. And we're not going to discuss that today because we looked at it when we looked at, again, 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're, they're interchangeable. They speak about the work. The work that the man does. David Platt, a, a man of the word, he did something very interesting many years ago, a side note. He says, I'm going to preach the truth, which he did, but I'm going to give people a chance to grow in the truth. And he decided on a Friday night that he would open the Word and he would teach through the Bible in a different situation and people hung around for five hours. And before he knew it, there were over a thousand people. When you and I become people of truth in this community, when they see it in our lives, when they hear it from our lips, they will come to the truth. The saving truth of Jesus Christ. David Platt put it this way, being faithful to the church means that we, we will mend the broken, straighten what is crooked, start at the top by making sure good and godly leaders are put in the place to lead God's flock. In the seminaries, what they're teaching is just alarming. It, it, it doesn't even line up with the Word of God. This is the next generation. See, this message where we're going to be talking about pastors, yeah, it's talking about character, but it's talking about all of us. Please understand this. This is not just pastors. Pastors are not the super Christians. There are not super Christians. What he's describing in this passage as we go through is what's supposed to be the norm for the church. This is the norm. This is what was seen in Antioch when they first called them Christians. 
because they were like Christ. They were on a mission. They found their happiness and fulfillment in, in sharing the word and ministering to people, loving people. But when a church first starts, it was hard. See, people needed to grow. They needed to mature. And it begins by bringing them the very Word of God. Teaching them. Grounding them. Nurturing them in the very Word of God. That's what we do. We teach the Word of God. We look at it different ways during the week. Wednesday mornings is more applicational Bible study. Teaching through 2 Kings. Applying it today. Thursday nights, it's more devotional and applicational in a different way in the book of Mark. All planned that you would grow in that love and grace of Jesus Christ, that you would become everything that God would have you be. But the question is, do you want to be everything that God would have you be? That's the question. It's work. But when you get in and you dig in and you begin to grow, it is the best thing that ever happened to you. When you decide to put your hand to the plow and not turn back, there is a joy that fills your life, overflows to lives of people around you. When Paul evangelized, they needed to take time for people to grow and mature. And as soon as they could, he sends Titus back into this place to find those that God is working in their life. Those that God is raising up. Those that have been tested and proved and decided to put their life on the line no matter what's going on, whether it would cost them their job, whatever. Looking for those. And it was important that they would be indigenous because they could reach the culture where they're at. They would receive it easier. The early Christians followed what we would call the, again, traditions. Not so much of the church in the very beginning, but really of Judaism. Going back again to Exodus 18, where Moses delegated to those over 500 and hundreds and fifties and tens, and those things were difficult, too difficult. Bring them to him. He couldn't carry it all. No pastor can carry it all. It's not his job. His job is to feed the sheep. To build up the sheep. To bring them to maturity so they'll not be tossed and turned of every wind of doctrine. So Titus comes back. He's nurturing. He's grounding. He's looking for what God is doing. And this was important. Especially important then because Titus is come to an island where, where really, if you would give them a title, they would be the, the wild bunch. Do you know a wild bunch around you? Some, some neighbors that are just, oh, yeah. They were wild. They were known as, as liars. They were lazy. They were deceitful. Verse 12, you can read about it later in your, in your, your text there, describing really the lifestyle. And you find that in different cultures. And he comes in our life and he changes us. But just as Satan was moving and seemed to be 
all-powerful in many ways. The Judaizers also established themselves. There was a Jewish culture there. Forming legalistic rules and regulations trying to apply them to the people. Titus comes on the scene, sent by Paul, but I believe sent by God. And remember, God sends his what? God sends his best. So if you're going to somebody sharing the gospel, you're the best one to be there. Because God's prepared you. He's equipped you. If you allow him, if you let him. Look with me again in verse 5, and we see he's to appoint elders in every city. Now, these aren't just elders over the city. These are elders, most likely, most scholars believe, that these were a series of home churches. There, could, there were 100 cities, let's say. There was a minimum of 100 churches, and there could have been two, 300 churches. We don't know. But there were elders in each churches. There were people that would lead godly men called by God. Not hirelings. Not there for a paycheck. Not easy way. Men that love God with all their hearts, mind, and soul, and strength. He was to point them. He was to look for those that were mature and committed to the glory of God. Committed to, to God's church, God's people. See, that's the place that you and I are to come to, to mature, to grow in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Not to be tossed and turned of every wind of doctrine. When things happen, not, not to lose control, not to, to panic over, to know that God is still on the throne. We're going to see some of these traits that are actually in the scripture here. What a pastor, what an elder, what a, a bishop is to be like. It's interesting that God was raising up these men. Look with me in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would not be profitable. You know that an elder, a pastor, a bishop, whatever you want to have, different churches have different names. If you get the names, look at what God's doing through them. They will give account. One day, I will give account. What have I done with Jesus Christ? What have I done with God's word? Fathers, mothers, you also will give account. What have you done in your own life, in the life of your kids? Again, watch how these will apply to ourselves. Now, again, 1 Timothy 3.1, notice what it says. It's a, a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. But what does that mean? In the face of persecution, when this was being written, it meant that these men that were willing to be an elder were willing to lay down their life. The scripture is very clear. There's no greater love than one who would lay down his life for his brethren. They were the one that had a mark on their back. They were the head of the church in that sense. How wonderful. They had a target on their back. They would be the first to be persecuted. They, you would see whether they were real, true believers or not. But what this is saying, if you really desire to be in this place, 
This is a good work because it glorifies God. And you love the people. For me, when I read this, I have to ask the question, will I lay down my life? What would happen if they told me I can't read the Bible? Will I read it and not read it? By God's grace, I will read it. See, unless you're in the Word, unless you make that decision today, you may be in that same place. This is very important to understand. These words are, are very serious, and as I go through the character, I'll go through it very quickly. Well, Titus need to organize and establish a, a godly order. And again, there were many problems there, but he's going to give us some areas in picking these men, and it begins in verse 6, his family qualifications. Oh yes, there's qualifications. And it's important to understand, look at your verse there in verse 6, and it explains that. But a pastor, in simple terms, he needs to be a, a provider. I'm reading between the Scripture, and I'm not going to give you all the Scripture today in these cross-references today. But he's to be a provider, he's to be a protector, and a priest in his own home. Men, you need to provide, if all possible, to be that head of the household, physically, spiritually, lovingly. You need to be willing, likewise, to lay down your life for your own family. Your family needs to be safe and secure in your love that you would lay down your life for them. Now it's talking about an elder. But this is biblical for you and me. This is the norm for the Christian life. What should be the norm, I should say, is no longer the norm. In Africa, where the persecution is very hard from Islamic uh, teaching, again, please understand this, they're persecuting Christians. They come in the camps and they take the men and they haul them away so the, the men run. You may not be confronted with this, but this is the norm in the church. This is why the church is in full-blown apostasy in Europe. And it's coming to this country. As the Word of God disappears from the pulpits, there are still a young generation of pastors faithfully teaching the Word. You need to encourage your friends, your family, to be in a church that teaches the whole counsel of God's Word. Because then they will be confronted with the whole counsel. They will be without excuse. And pray that God would open up their hearts. His children, they need to believe. But they often believe because they see their parents believe. When a father loves his family and lives that Christian life before him, for the family, that's the greatest chance of your family, your kids, becoming believers. It starts here. It starts with you. These are the leaders, what's supposed to be. Now, because elders, by definition, were older guys, got the gray hair. Yeah. But let me tell you, I've known some young men that are very, very mature. 
Paul speaking again to Titus would assume that the, the elders would probably be married. And I think there are a lot of men, let me ask you a question. Don't hold your hands up. Just kind of look at me. Have you learned a lot of lessons being a, a husband, being a father? Oh, I've had to grow up. You know that feeling? And that's why, again, if a man is an elder, there are advantages of him being that elder, being that leader. But it just doesn't disqualify the younger man that's called by God. It's obvious in the way he lives that life. Look at verse 6 again. Namely, if any man is above reproach. It, it's a playback, really, of... of Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 2. It, it's important. Above all, this man, that nothing will stick. Oh, people may make accusations, but there's no proving ground for it. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, 10, notice what it says. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. The qualifications for a deacon are much the same as a, an elder in many, many ways. They need to be tested. You, you watch them. You watch them go through the trials of life. Watch them, how they deal with situations in the church. You just don't lay hands upon people quickly. It's the worst thing you can do. Once you get somebody in that situation that is not called by God, you've got a problem getting rid of them because it splits the church. Because people are, are they're, they're, they're friend. They love them. And it's a dangerous place to be. Here's an illustration that I found real interesting about John Phillips. He said Paul listed a few simple rules to, to guide Titus in his tasks. First, he should look for men who are blameless. Men whom you could call to count. Their integrity was impeccable. He says when World War II broke out, my father had a small automobile business in South Wales. was virtually bankrupt. The government commandeered all the private vehicles in which it could lay its hands on, rationed gas to the extent that all private cars were, in effect, grounded, except for those used for war work. My father placed on the floor of his workshop as he prayed, and he wondered what to do. And about that time, an acquaintance who ran a large automobile rental dealership visited him. He knew that my father was a skilled mechanic. He says, Lynn, he said, we have about 200 cars. We cannot replace them until the war is over. So we need to keep them in repair. The government will allocate parts since all these cars are rented for war work. Can you re rebore them, rebuild the engines for us, and we supply the parts? The next day, the and he says, yes. And he says, the next day the engine was... Delivered, he brought him an engine to test, brought it to my father's workshop, instructions to strip down, rebore the block, rebuild it with new parts supplied by the dealer. A few days later, the dealer picked up the engine. Nothing more happened for about a week. Then the dealer returned. He says, well, Lenny said, I'll tell you what we did. We took that rebuilt engine into our own shop, stripped it down. We wanted to see if you were honest. We wanted to see if you replace all the old parts with new parts. We've been ripped off by a number of small shops, but you have been scrupulously honest. We will bring you two to three engines a week. 
That is the kind of stuff in which integrity is made of. Integrity is the stuff that all Christians should be made of, especially those who are slated for eldership, leadership in the church. The leaders need to be men of integrity. It's very important. What you see is what you get. Well, it goes on, and a husband, it should be also a husband of one wife. And, and this is one that splits and divides the, the body of Christ. Donald Guthrie writes this, uh, the home is regarded as a, a training ground for Christian leaders. It's important. Now, this is, doesn't mean that a person must be perfect, because none of us are perfect, Right? But what it means, simply means, is there must be a consistency in your life, in my life. A consistency between what we say and what we do. A consistency between what we claim to be and what we are. A consistency between public life and private life. You want to know if I'm a Christian? I pray I am everything that you might think I am. Ask my wife. Ask the wife of another man. Because if it's not happening there, oh, not that any of us are perfect, but they won't know. We expect so much more of one another in our home environment than we do of others. Now, the husband of one wife literally means one woman, man. And elders not to be a, a polygamist. And again, Paul's not discounting, I don't believe, or disqualifying, again, a, a man who is a widower, or even a man that's never married. I've, I've known men that are that way. And this is something that each one of us, the Bible's not real clear, it becomes murky on this, but it's something that each one of us had to establish in our own heart, but it's talking about a, a, a character. I don't even believe that a person that has been divorced is disqualified. Well, how do I say that? Because many men and women have been divorced before they were ever married in Christ, before they were ever born again. A church I went to many, many years ago, they found a family, was in the church, had six kids. While God hates divorce... They took that family of six kids and because when they were 21 years old, both of them were divorced and then remarried and now married for 15 years and broke that family apart thinking that pleased God. See, it's really important how you live. It's very important. And think about this. The way that you live your life will affect those around you. I think Noah is a, a really good example of that. He was a preacher of righteousness. We just talked about this. 120 years. I couldn't remember how many years it was in a discussion. And then it stirred me for this example of this. He was a preacher of righteousness. He never won one convert, if you stop and look about it, outside his immediate family. Although he'd never want a convert outside his family, all eight members of his family rested in God. They were saved in the ark and they came in. 
But take a look at Lot in your mind who pitched his tent again towards Sodom. Son-in-laws didn't believe when warned about the wrath to come. He had to drag his daughters and his wife out of Sodom and his wife turned to a pillar of salt. What kind of witness was he? Are they saying for the leader? Your witness is important. It starts with your family. This is to be the norm for Christians. Not just elders. By saying this, he's saying people aren't living the way they should live. There's a lot of people living in deception. And you have to make that choice. Well, he goes on to personal qualifications in verses 7 and 8. Notice what it says, an overseer. You can find that also in 1 Timothy chapter 3. As I mentioned, the overseer, elder, they're interchangeable. It speaks of maturity. It speaks of experience and responsibility, watching over uh, God's flock. They're given this responsibility. There's a gift, though, given to a pastor, pastor, teacher, which is the same person who simply expounds on the word. He could be a, a shepherd to watch over that flock, to, to love them, to nurture them, to minister to them. Very important. William Barclay points something out in his commentary. He's great for practical word studies. He notes that an elder was more of a Jewish name and the, and the bishop was more of a Greek name, each referring to the same office. To me, as I see them, I may be wrong. They're just descriptions. An elder is that mature one that comes along and loves. And I believe a pastor is an elder. An overseer watches over that flock of God. And, and I think sometimes we do the both. Even the title, pastor. Many just call me Ron. That's fine. You want to call me Ron. Pastor is one of respect. I understand that. But a pastor to me is more of what I do. Am I doing what God has called me to do? Are you doing what God has called you to do? The next thing it says in that verse must be above reproaches God's steward. See, a pastor, an elder, realizes he's a steward. He's entrusted with this responsibility watching over the flock of God. He's a manager. What is he managing? He's a preacher of the gospel. Bringing the gospel message to the people. Not his own opinions. Not his personal insight, not discounting the Word of God, but simply bringing the Word of God, explaining it the best of his own ability because different pastors have different gifts and different levels. He's put in that place of authority. He brings the good news of Jesus Christ just as God gave it in the Scripture. That's important. You don't add to what God says. You just bring what God says, and you can bring it certainly in, in different ways as far as a culture can understand, but it must point to the fact of what Jesus Christ has done for you and that you need to receive him as your Lord and Savior. The most wonderful thing about the gospel, when you stop and think about it, it's all about Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and we'll be seeing face to face one day. Look with me in verse 7. It says, not be self-willed. Well, the contrast to that is to, to be obedient, to, to be submissive to God. 
not just to God, but to others. We're to submit to one another in Christ Jesus. Is not to be stubborn and want it my way or the highway. It's God's way. What does God say in his scripture? And that's important to understand. You know, a self-willed person is one that he's controlled by his own self-interest, driven by his own self-interest. He lacks humility. He lacks gentleness toward others. But to the other one who is obedient and submissive, humble and kind and caring, because he's other-centered. He's not to be quick-tempered. It means a, a, a contrast would be mild manner. Somebody gets angry in your face. You ever have anybody get angry in your face? It means that you're to be calm, mild, not out of control, not puff your chest out, not say, ooh, it. Gentle and kind. Is that hard? Yes, it is. You know what happens is when you do those right things, it's like, wow, my faith is real. <laughs> I am growing. I am maturing. Thank you, Lord. Because you cannot do it on your own power. You need him. You need him all the time. So he must not be an angry man. In fact, the man that nourishes his anger against any man is really not fit for the ministry. Any man that is in the pulpit, an elder that is mad at somebody 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, should never be in ministry. He's not fit for the ministry. He's never learned that you, you catch more flies with honey than you will vinegar. He wants to fight all the time. Well, the one that's in the ministry must love people. He must be a, a man that's at peace with people no matter what's going on in their life, whether they're in a panic or crisis or they're angry. Be able to be soft-spoken. Even though you and I may not be able to desensitize the situation at that time. Remember, a kind word turns away wrath. You just keep being kind and allow God to work in them. It may be years before they come to the senses, but they're going to remember. They're going to remember how they acted and how you were, and that is important. That's the kind of people you and I, and certainly leaders in the church, need to be. Not to be addicted to wine or temperate. He must not be given to drunkenness, or even not just drunkenness in itself, to outrageous conduct. You know how some people, when they drink, they can't drink and they, they go out of control, right? Well, some people act that way even when they haven't had a drink. They lack that control. They're what the Scripture will call a, a brawler. The facts were there, the truth was there, it would set them free, and they reject it. It describes the character of a man who even in sober moments acts in an outrageous, outrageousness of just of a, a man who is drunken. Notice it also says not pugnacious. A striker, a, a violent man, can be figuredly a reviler, 
A man that, again, his words, he's contentious, he's a quarreler. quarreler. He's always picking fights with people. How would you like to have a pastor just when I get down here, I'm looking for a fight. Who can I fight with today? You didn't like the message? You know, I've seen people like that. You say yes, they say no. You say right, they say wrong. Laugh. People are that way, aren't they? Maybe you're that way. God can change you if you allow Him to to change you. There are those that, again, they're like this that are accustomed to bullying people, getting their way. Really, what does God want? Following God, the heart of God. This is speaking again. The one that shoves and shoulders his way through life, getting his way, no matter what the cost is. First Corinthians 5.11 says something about this kind of person. It says, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he's immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, a drunkard, swindler, not even eat with such a person. How can we have a leader like that? How can we call ourselves a Christian if these things are true in our own life? Notice again, he's not to be fond of sordid gain. Now, being a successful businessman is not a qualification for being a leader, spiritual leader. No, this is important to understand. No, it doesn't qualify because the church is never meant to be a business. It's it's to be spirit-led. It's people that are called out ones. We're called out to God to follow God. God may call you and me to do things that will line up with the Scripture that will contradict the way of the world. And we need to do it. The church has never been meant to run as a business. Think of Abraham. Oh, I love Abraham. The driving force of Abraham. Oh, he, yeah, he was a rich man. I understand. Lots of servants. Lots of money. Lots of power. He had great promises, in fact. Abraham was going to become a great nation. His his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And he would inherit a land that would eventually be from the Nile again to the Euphrates. But what impelled him, what moved him along, he was a city built with the hands of God. What is that impelling you in life? What's that you're looking for, longing for. Jesus says, we go and prepare a place for you. If it's not so, I wouldn't have told you. It's not even the place that's so important to me. It's just being there with the one who's laid down his life for you and me. Isn't that amazing? I certainly wouldn't have laid down my life for anyone else before I became a believer. Maybe for my family. And I wouldn't have laid down my life for myself. But things change when you become a believer. Well, notice what he is to be. He is to be hospitable. That means a a pastor, an elder, is to be devoted to a lover of hospitality. It's to be a lifestyle. It's really a a visible portrayal of of loving God and, and loving others around us. 
We have two commands, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, and that's what's being fulfilled here when you're hospitable. It means willing to take your shirt off your back and give it to someone else if they're in need. It's also to be a lover of what is good, a devoted to, a lover of what's beneficial, what's helpful to others, what's best for others. It's the good things as well as the the good people in life. A minister of God loves good no matter where you find it. People, things. He loves the poor. He loves the homeless. The weak, the suffering, the wealthy, the healthy, the arrogant, the unloving people. He loves them. He's willing to lay down his life for them. See, this is what the church is to be. And if the church was being what it's supposed to be, we would find more of these men today. Sensible. This word speaks of the pastor being safe and sound in mind. You want a a pastor that's calm and safe. The world's falling apart, not worried about, not thinking he's the Messiah and going to solve all the problems. But calm, self-controlled, moderate in opinions, even passions. He's to be discreet. He's to be level-headed. Sensible. He's not to be empty-headed and mindless. He's to think and act wisely. Now why this is all the church, but this is what we as leaders are called to be. He's also to be just, meaning honest and upright and fair. Above board in all of his dealings with God and, and man around him. There's no deception, no lying, cheating, stealing, misbehavior. Now I'm describing it seems like the the perfect person. No, none of us are perfect, but this is what God is working in you and me when he says that we're to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ and we are his workmanship. He will finish this work in us. Our part now is to submit to him. Our part is to say, Lord, I'm not what you want me to be right now, but you know, I want to be. Will you help me be that? Will you show me? Will you surround me with brothers and sisters that love me? Will will hold me up in prayer? People that I can be accountable with. Next thing it goes on to is devout. That word devout means holy and, and free from any wickedness. It's not being conformed to, uh, again, this world, but his word. But his word be conformed. Jesus is that living word. Devout means those are watchful, mindful of their relationship. That means when you sin, and let me give you a clue, you do sin, that you recognize that sin right away, you confess that sin right away and say, God, I'm I'm sorry. Help me recognize before I get to this place. It also means they're watchful and mindful, their relationship with God, but they they walk in the grace of God. That, That means the people around them, their understanding of them. Because people... They'll let you down. You ever notice that? Yeah, they'll let you down, and you will let them down. 
So it means we have to be gracious to them. We have to be loving to them. We, we have to be compassionate with them. Well, again, self-control, body, mind, and life. Watchful. Is preaching, again, the qualifications you find in verse 9? Look with me. Holding fast. This is Every pastor should have this maybe in their office. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with teaching. So they'd be able both to exhort, this is important to understand, in sound doctrine to refute those who contradict. So he has a responsibility. What does he do? He's to hold fast to the faithful word. This is, this is a ministry to, to hold to God's word, to be a man of the word, to speak God's word. And this, again, is true for every person here. But women, to be this. But certainly, with apostasy coming on, if we do not have these men to hold to the word of God, we will see the apostasy increasing in this country. Elders, leaders, pastors, they have a twofold ministry. They're to build up the church with sound and healthy doctrine. Whether the people want it or not, if they go, they go. But to bring the truth. They're to refute these false teachers. This is what Titus is going to have to do with those and also train the people to deal with these false teachers, these Judaizers. We'll, we'll see it as we go through. He needed to be a faithful elder, both as teacher and defender and preacher and physician. That's what Paul had to be. It needs to be constantly and consistently to take up the task of comfort. And, and if you're following God's Word, the world will mock you. All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. You need to make that decision. Will you stand on the faithful, true Word? Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind so that you'll prove what the will of God is and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If the church practices and lived this, there would be more godly leaders and teachers and pastors and we wouldn't see the apostasy. Well, it starts with the pastor, the elders, the leaders, and trickles down to you. You have to make that decision. Where will you be? What will you stand upon? See, there are no super Christians. This is what we're all called to be. Some will be called to be in the ministry in a, in a very special way. There's a great accountability and responsibility given to them. But all of us are to live this life. All of us are, are to be like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me just also as I am of Christ. The world needs to see Christ in your life. Would you stand with me, please? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your precious word that it lovingly confronts us. It lovingly shows us what's right and what's wrong and how to get right and how to stay right. Father, we want to be men and women of your 
word. We want our children and grandchildren to grow up and to be men and women of the word. Father, we ask that you would revive our hearts. That we, the church, would return to that first love relationship with you. That we would put you first before all things. We want to see your glory in, in this church, in this community, and in, in our families. Lord Jesus, come now, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen.